You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Thank you, friends. Thank you, Matt and company, for the joy of being here with you. Thank you for those of us who are joining us online. Uh, Thank you for those of us who have taken the trouble to be here, actually. It's good to have you all. And thank you for taking this evening time together. It's a privilege to be here. And um, before we go on, let me just pray specifically for the opening up of God's Word now. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your Word. We desire, as we've just been singing, to hear from you. We want to give you praise and thanks for the way you have blessed us. And we pray that you do that again now. Give us understanding, we pray. By your Holy Spirit, apply your Word to our hearts. We ask that for our good and for your everlasting honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, I want us to consider two matters very plainly and simply here in the Bible. Particularly, if we go to our New Testaments, let's go to the end, let's find the book of Jude. Let's go to the book of Jude, the first two verses. I want us to consider some things which are both obvious And like most obvious things, very important and not to be assumed. Number one, what worshipers are called, loved, kept. And number two, what worshipers need. Verse two, mercy, peace, love. That's all I'm going to say to you tonight. That's a summary right there. Jude 1 and 2. All we're going to do now is meditate on that truth. So first, who worshipers are? Well, let's read these two verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So what I'm saying in that first verse is that Jude is telling us who these worshipers that you and I want to serve, who these worshipers are most fundamentally. And we see he begins, they are those who have been called. Of course, that image is used throughout the Bible for what God does when he chooses some to be his followers. We find it all over the Bible in the book of Revelation. The lamb is said to be with those who are called, the Lord of lords and King of kings. Those who fought alongside him are the called, we find in Revelation 17. Paul clearly taught that there were certain ones who were chosen to be saved through belief in the truth, just as he put it to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul himself, of course, was called very famously on the road to Damascus. What all of this does, it reminds us of the fact that Christians are called, that it is God who initiates with us. It is God who saves us. We couldn't demand his salvation. We don't qualify for it. We've done nothing to get God to save us. Apart from his grace, we would have no hope. Paul said to the Roman Christians that they were among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ 
in Romans 1. We find clearly in the Bible the teaching that Christians are the called by God, called according to his prior counsel. Remember the famous words in Romans 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Friends, the initiative is with God. It is God who calls. This was the experience of the disciples. You remember what Jesus said to them? You did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. This was certainly the experience of Mary. This was the experience of the Old Testament prophets. Remember in Ezekiel how it begins? Ezekiel is not out praying and fasting, sort of reaching up to rend the heavens open with his own piety. God comes to him. That storm comes out of the north, and God comes bringing a vision of himself to Ezekiel. It's God who takes the initiative, just like he had with Jeremiah, just like he does with Isaiah in the temple. This was the experience of David, the young shepherd boy. This is the experience of Moses, the old shepherd man. God takes the initiative in the Bible. This was the experience of Abram and Ur and the Chaldees. He was a worshiper of idols, of Noah before him. My friends, Adam and Eve didn't ask to be created. God created them. He initiated. That's, that's what God does. It's part of his very godness. He initiates. All the, the benefits that we were just singing about with the psalmist from Psalm 103, they come from God. He gives them in his grace and love. God is the author and initiator of life and of the promises of new life once we've spent our old one. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now listen, if you're a Christian here tonight, you know that by your own experience. Every single one of us here who truly knows Christ knows what it means that he has come after us, that he has saved us. And what a glorious truth that is, that he has called us. You know that you have been called not simply in hearing the gospel with your ears, but by the Spirit of God calling you when your soul was dead, calling you to life. Well, friends, the Bible is just full of images like this. I love it in, in uh, Mark 7 when Jesus speaks to the deaf man. I love that. By his words going out, his spirit will create not just physical hearing, but spiritual hearing as well. When I was in college, I was a young Christian, and I had a nightly routine of reading Spurgeon's Mornings and Evenings. If you've never read Spurgeon's Mornings and Evenings, you have uh, withheld a treat from yourself, get a copy and read it. Mornings and Evenings, he just has one-page devotionals for each day. He might be a little fanciful at times in the way he treats Scripture, but it's wonderful images and all good theologically and so rich for the soul. I remember one night when I was reading, and I was just blown away with exactly these truths. It's the morning of uh, November 15th, so I must have been reading that one in the morning, not in the evening. Deuteronomy 32.9, 9, 
The Lord's portion is his people. How are they his? By his own sovereign choice, he chose them and set his love upon them. This he did altogether apart from any goodness in them at the time or any goodness which he foresaw in them. He had mercy on whom he would have mercy and ordained a chosen company unto eternal life. Thus, therefore, are they his by his unconstrained election. They are not only his by choice, but by purchase. He has bought and paid for them to the utmost farthing. Hence, about his title, there can be no dispute, not with corruptible things, as with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's portion has been fully redeemed. There's no mortgage on his estate. No suits can be raised by opposing claimants. The price was paid in open court, and the church is the Lord's freehold forever. See the blood mark upon all the chosen, invisible to human eye, but known to Christ. For the Lord knoweth them that are his. He forgetteth none of those whom he has redeemed from among men. He counts the sheep for whom he laid down his life, and he remembers well the church for which he gave himself. They are also his by conquest. What a battle he had in us before we would be won. How long he laid siege to our hearts. How often he sent us terms of capitulation, but we barred our gates and fenced our walls against him. Do we not remember that glorious hour when he carried our hearts by storm, when he placed his cross against the wall and scaled our ramparts, planting on our strongholds the blood-red flag of his omnipotent mercy? Yes, we are indeed the conquered captives of his omnipotent love. Thus chosen, purchased, and subdued, the rights of our divine possessor are inalienable. We rejoice that we never can be our own, and we desire day by day to do his will and to show forth his glory. Amen. Now, friends, if you have that squarely in your minds and thoughts, how differently Will you plan or will you lead that service? If front and center in your mind was the idea, the confidence, the knowledge, the certainty that God is calling his own, that he is initiating, that he is doing real creating, and you are simply stepping in and leading people to respond to what God is doing and what God will do. Friends, I'm one who often leads public services of Christians. I think about this. It has all kinds of implications. How can I highlight in every way the fact that this is about God, not about me? It affects what kind of illustrations I use or don't use. It affects how much I talk about myself or how much I don't. It affects what I try to do in all kinds of ways. It affects when I'm in a meeting like this, wanting to make sure the lights are up so that everybody can look at their Bibles as we're looking at the Bible together. It makes me think carefully about, even in, in the music in our church, how loud it is. Is the music from the front overwhelming the congregation? Or is the music from the front helping the congregation to sing? And are they hearing each other's voices in proclaiming these great truths? I could go on and on in practical ways that we can try to think about how do we, how do we lift up and point to and emphasize the fact that all that we're doing is not about us. It's about God. It's about what He has done. If we're Christians, we need to know that we are called by God. That's not all we need to know of who worshipers are. Why are Christians called like this? Well, Jude says right here in the next phrase in verse 1, 
he used to describe the recipients. He says, who are loved by God the Father. Why are we called? Well, it just gets better. We're called because we're loved. Loved, he says, by God the Father. We're not called because we love God, but because God loved us. Remember, that's what John says in 1 John 4. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because He first loved us. So calling is based on God's prior choice, prior election of us. Christians are are elect and therefore called. They're called because they are elect, and it's on this basis that we are holy, that we are faithful. God makes us to be special by setting His love upon us, like Spurgeon was just writing about in that devotional. He, He sets us apart specially. Friends, what a privilege to be so loved by God. Isn't that amazing? It's far more important than this conference or whatever job we have. Friends, honestly, it's more important than those we love most in this world. To be so loved by our Creator and Judge, that's an extraordinary fact. Interesting, in the Gospels, the only one that is ever called the beloved of God is the Son of God. So when Christians are referred to as beloved in this way, it seems to me to be by virtue of our being in Christ. We are loved by the Father as we are because He has brought us by His grace into His Son whom He loves. So who are worshipers? Well, those who have been called, those who have been loved by God. Now, friends, in our times together, When you're with your church on Sunday morning, you're singing God's praises, how do our times reflect this most fundamental fact? Is there a kind of taken for granted of coarseness about these kind of things I'm talking about? Or are these the kind of things that fire your heart, that motivate you as you lead God's people into awe and wonder? If we're Christians, we need to know that we are loved by God the Father. And not only are we called and loved by God the Father, Christians are also, says Jude, you see there, kept by Jesus Christ. It's one of the main themes of his little letter. If you want to read this tonight before you go to bed, it's obviously very short. Jude was writing this to a group of Christians who seemed to be in danger of sinking into immorality in the name of grace and therefore defeating the very lordship of Christ that they claimed to uphold, And therefore, given this great danger, Jude wrote to them of Christ's shepherding, of His guarding, of His preserving, of His keeping those same ones who'd been loved and called by God. Down in verse 6, Jude will remind them, you see, of angels who did not keep their positions and who are therefore now kept by God for judgment. And then if you look on down to verse 13, he says that the false teachers in their midst now are being kept in the same way for God's judgment. And then if you look down at verse 21, Jude will round out his letter by admonishing these Christians. Verse 21, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Those who are kept by Jesus Christ will keep themselves in God's love. God is not ignorant of our obedience 
John wrote, we know that anyone born of God keeps him safe and the evil one does not touch him. Friends, what kind of safety can we really know in this world? Much safety. Remember how Jesus prayed for us in John 17? And if Jesus prays for us, it's going to be answered. Look at, in, in John 17, I'll just read it to you. John 17, verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Oh, friend, if you're ever feeling worried, look at John 17, 11 and 12. Commit them to memory. Protect them, Jesus prays, by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Isn't that amazing? If you're anything like me, you are constantly praying, like every morning in your quiet time, to have various trials removed. You know, trials about your health, trials that people you know and love are in. I'm I'm an expert in praying that trials be removed. And yet Jesus, when he's, among other things, teaching us how to pray, because although that's the son speaking to the father, for some reason it's recorded, I think we're supposed to learn something from it. He prays not that he would take, the Father would take us out of the world, but that he would protect us from the evil one in the world. Somehow the evil one raging at us through trials and yet not being able to consume us highlights the power of God. It shows the utter reliability of the words that he speaks. And we know that his promises are true. And he's glorified in it. Friend, your life and mine would be easier without the trials that we're undergoing. But they wouldn't bring more glory to God. And if what we're interested in, ultimately, is God being glorified, and if we know the evil one snapping at us, growling at us, straining against God's very power in order to consume us, if we know that somehow will bring glory to God, as we stand and see him, and yet don't flinch, trusting in God's promises. We know that brings him more glory than we're content. You see, Jesus Christ has personally taken on himself responsibility for ensuring the ultimate safety of his own. Jude's already referred to Jesus twice just in this first verse. I mean, if Jude understood it as the work of God the Father to call, it seems clear that he also understood it as the work of Christ the Son to keep. And by the way, Jude is Jesus' half-brother. How amazing is this, that the guy looks at his older brother and understands that he's God incarnate? I used to be an agnostic, and i got to tell you, the more I study the Bible, the more I'm just amazed at how there is such evidence all over the place for the claims that Jesus made. Anyway, it is the work of Christ to keep us. God's great love stretches from eternity past into eternity future. What a marvelous hope we have. And He will keep us as long as we need to be kept, even until the final day. He will keep us from whatever we need to be kept from, from dangers moral or doctrinal. And He will keep us in the end, really, for himself, 
because we are intended for him. Friends, feel something of the comfort there is in this, that we are kept by Jesus Christ. What, what this means is that this plan is foolproof. It can stand up against you or me, your problems or mine, if you are called and loved by him. So can salvation be lost? Jude's words here, kept by Jesus Christ, combined with a lot of other places in the New Testament, like Peter's comment that our inheritance is being kept for us in heaven by God, 1 Peter 1.4, seems clearly to teach us that by its very nature, being planned and executed and ensured by God, true salvation cannot be forfeited. And what a ground of that is, is there for our joy and our worship as we know that what we have is something that we will never lose. I mean, what, what will you do that will make Jesus Christ let you go if it didn't stop him from loving you in the first place before you ever loved him? What is it you have in mind that you'll come up with now? He is committed in his love. He is pursuing us forever. Now, this doesn't mean that we can live any way we want to, and we won't live certain ways if we're Christians. And even if we do, we'll find ourselves more and more taking God's part against our sins rather than our sins part against God. Are you all seeing people come to Christ in your churches? I pray that you are. It's a blessing of God. By God's grace, we've, we've seen people converted pretty steadily in a stream in Washington, Capitol Hill. Maybe not all the people we'd like to see converted, but at least people we'd like to see converted. Praise God for them. And one of the things that troubles the young Christian often is the fact that they continue to sin. It seems like a shock to them sometimes. I can't tell you how many times I've had a young guy in my study, two months after he's become a Christian, grieving over the fact that he's still finding sin in his life and really scared, wondering if this means that he's not really a Christian because he read 1 John or something, you know. <laughs> what? What I have to tell him to do is again and again, look, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not that the Christian doesn't sin and the non-Christian does sin, but it's that when the non-Christian sins, he takes his sins part against God when God convicts him. But when the Christian sins, he takes God's part against his own sin when God begins to convict him. And change comes by God's grace. I think that's one of the reasons it's good for us not to be overly triumphant in our services together. If all we ever do is pump out the Christian life is full of joy, 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 we're lying. Jesus went to the cross. Friends, the religion we're about is about, yes, a religion of love and joy, these wonderful comforts we've just been thinking together about, but it's a religion that's the most realistic of all religions about the trials of this life. It's a religion that's clear that in this world you will know persecution. We want to be clear in our services about the continuing nature of the struggle with sin. That's why I think it's useful in our public services uh, to have a public confession of sin. Uh, every week in our morning service on Sunday, we have a, someone lead us in a public confession of sin, and then we'll have a scriptural assurance of pardon after that. Not a priest absolving us of sin, but some Christian reading a statement from Scripture of the hope that we have in Christ of the forgiveness that we've found in him. Friends, you want to have a better sense yourself of being kept by Christ? 
just pay attention to the baptisms at your church. Look at what God is proclaiming to you through the Lord's Supper the next time you celebrate it together. See again the cross set before you. See the extent he's gone to love you. So at church this coming Lord's Day, realize that God's word is preached for you to hear even if you're leading the service. Remember that how you respond to the word preached has far more to do with what God counts as your worship of him than whether the singers came in at the right time or the that new tune worked or the sound mix was right. Open your ears to God's word for you. Trust God in it. God's promises are there for you, held right out in his word as his word has been preached. And don't, don't just listen to it preached, but meditate on it. Find some other good books or some good friends who love the Lord and want to please him and regularly gather with them, gather with the church in her meetings. I think sometimes for those of us who are up front a lot, a season of not being up front, but being regularly gathered with the church in her meetings is one of the best things for our spiritual lives. I think one of the worst things about seminary is it shuts young guys up for three years, keeps their mouths closed while they learn and mature in Christ. Friend, a time you not being in front of people, but being with God's people, not taking a vacation from Christianity, no loving your local church deeply, but just participating in its life like everybody else does, being fed by the word can be wonderful for your soul. Well, think for a moment of this wonderful freedom of understanding such good providence of God that he gives to the Christian. As we see how God saves us, what an amazing situation he's put us in. Now, all these attributes, called, loved, kept, separate off the true worshipers that Jude is writing to from the false teachers that he's warning them about in their midst. Those who are loved are kept. Those who are kept are the ones who are called All three of these things are said about the same group. These all distinguish these people from other people. They are called, loved, kept. So true Christian worshipers are called, are loved, are kept. One of the things that's interested me about meditating on this passage as a pastor is the fact that Jude is dealing with this problem of bad members in the church because he's got false teachers in the church. He's dealing with the problem of bad members in the church by talking to the good ones, the people who were called, loved by God the Father, kept by Jesus Christ, because he knew that they would be teachable. So he was instructing them. He knew that that would be the way forward. Often one of the best ways to tend to what's wrong is by tending to what's right and continuing on in that. If you want to improve a dark night, Spurgeon said, give us brighter stars. And if we want to enlighten a dark age, let us have brighter Christians. I believe the short way to the conversion of sinners is the sanctification of saints. We are kept and called and loved. And in all of this, notice who it is that loves us, who it is that calls us, who it is that keeps us. It is God from first to last. The salvation of the Christian is from God. So this is true of of all worshipers. This is what worshipers are, saved people who are called and loved and kept. 
And so it's only natural that Jude should make this request of them that we see in verse 2. So this is the other part, verse 2. We see here what worshipers need. You wonder what worshipers need? Here's what worshipers need. Verse 2 doesn't tell us everything worshipers need, but it does tell us some of what all worshipers need. How are the services that we lead complete if they're not regularly finding these same themes in them? So in my own service planning, I plan the services at our church. I begin by looking at the text of Scripture, whether I'm preaching or someone else. I'll do this three times a year. I sit down and plan out for four months at a time. And I'll begin with the text of Scripture. And then I'll get a theological theme and an anthropological theme out of it. So what's something we're seeing about God that's being taught here? What's something we're seeing about humans, our response to God? And then from that, I'll assemble readings from Scripture, songs that would be appropriate with that, trying to help us understand this this need that we have, this way that we are dependent upon God, and making sure that these grand themes are there regularly. We see here in verse 2 that Jude prays these three things for them. So take note of these three things. They wouldn't be bad three things for you to pray for yourself, for others. First, pray for mercy. Pray for mercy. What's mercy? Well, this is God's special covenant love that He's always had for His people. Indeed, this is what makes us His people. Mercy here is, as one author has put it, a strong affection of love toward His people in misery and a mighty desire to make them blessed in the highest possible degree. God looks on us in compassion and will deliver us from woe to glory. And this disposition in God is mercy. It's nothing that we've earned or deserved. Mercy really implies grace, and it's this gracious mercy that's the very stuff that the Christian walks in constantly. In this, we're born. In this, we live. As Peter said in 1 Peter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great or abundant mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So friends, in this mercy we are born again. In this we continue to hope, as Jude says a little later in verse 21, as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Mercy is frequently prayed for in the New Testament. Paul opens his letter to Timothy praying that he would continue to know the mercy of God. Paul prayed for the Galatians for all the the Galatians to continue uh, in the true gospel and so know God's mercy. And one place, you know, in Romans 9, he even specifically calls Christians those who are the objects of God's mercy. Romans 9, 23, what if God did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom He has also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Mercy. Now, friends, how can you make mercy prominent in your services if what you do is flatter people, try to make them feel good about themselves, all the inner human potential they have that they can realize more and more? Friends, we can't. We can't know the richness and sweetness of God's mercy if we don't realize the trouble 
that we're in. Throughout the Bible, we find that we need mercy. I love the way Don Carson has written about this theme in the Bible in one article he wrote. He says, God is the creator. We who bear his image have rebelled and brought down the curse of our maker upon this entire created order. God initiates covenantal relationships, but while he is the God of the covenant, we show ourselves to be covenant breakers. God is the king. We rebel against his rule. God is the husband of his covenant people who go whoring after other gods. God is the God of justice and mercy. We fill the streets with violence and ignore the poor. God is the shepherd of his people. We are lost, straying, stupid sheep and are led by corrupt shepherds. God pours out his unmerited blessings upon his people. We are characterized by thanklessness and grumbling. God is a farmer, an expert in viticulture. His people are a rotten vine. Friends, we need mercy. We, we must tell people the truth that we need mercy. I remember one thing Chesterton writes, I don't have the quote here, about how he first heard the, the Christian understanding of sin. And he said when before he believed in a more humanistic philosophy that the world was all right, something seemed wrong. But finally, when he heard in the Bible that there was something that was desperately wrong with everybody, he said suddenly his heart sang for joy because he knew finally somebody was telling him the truth about the situation that he saw with his eyes. Friend, what would you earn? God's choice of you? God's covenant with you? Christ's coming? His death? His resurrection? Forgiveness of sins? A new start with God? What part of your salvation would you earn? There's not a bit of it that any one of us could ever earn. And so we need God's mercy to begin. And we need God's mercy to continue. As long as we're sinners, we need God's mercy. And Jude prays for mercy for them. He also prays for peace, you see there. If there were the, the typical echoes of the, the Greek greeting of grace in mercy, kairos, so here we see an echo of the Hebrew greeting, shalom, peace, health. Uh, and this is part of the greeting, I think, of all the letters in the New Testament, from the book of Revelation on back through all of Paul's letters. Uh, the epistle of the Hebrews is particularly full of benedictions, where God is epitomized as the God of peace. Paul presents God in the same way in his benediction in the first letter to the Thessalonians, referring to God as God himself, the God of peace. And again, 2 Thessalonians, now may the Lord of peace himself gives you, give you peace at all times and in every way. And again, to the Romans, the God of all peace. I've traveled enough to know that Americans often don't value peace as much as people in other parts of the world where they haven't had even the most simple kinds of physical peace. They've had a testimony to their inner alienation from God in the brokenness of the world all around them in tragic ways. Friends, this peace is another aspect of the foundation of the faith that these believers had that Jude is writing to. It's like Paul said to the Colossians, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heavens, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is how peace initially comes to the Christian. So now listen, if you're watching online 
or you're even here tonight and you're not a Christian, we're delighted you're here. There's no place we'd rather you be. There's nothing we'd rather be listening to. This is the great news of Christianity. This is the news that Salim, a Muslim from Pakistan that I was talking to yesterday, didn't know and didn't believe. He thinks he can live well enough that Allah will be okay with him at the end. But friends, Christianity, I think, is more realistic about our own hearts. God is perfectly good, and we are not. And because of that, because God is good, we all have a problem. We need a Savior. God sent His Son as that Savior. He lived a life of complete goodness and trust in His heavenly Father, and He died on the cross bearing the punishment of God, of a good God, against the sins of all those that would ever turn and trust in Him. He bore that punishment. He brought us cleansing and forgiveness and reconciliation. And God raised Him from the dead to show that He accepted that, and He calls everyone now to turn from our sins and to trust in Him. If you don't know this Christ that we've been singing about, thinking about tonight, you can know Him tonight. If you'll repent of your sins, turn from them and trust in Him. Talk to somebody around you, if you're on the internet, email into this conference. They would love to talk to you about this. Be a huge encouragement to them to know that you care about this and that you're wanting to know about this in your own life. Friends, this is what we're about as God's people. We're about His mercy. So why would we not want to showcase that in our meetings together every week? The mercy of God. Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And this peace that we know with God now is supposed to spill over into our relationships with each other. Surely Jude was praying that for these troubled Christians. Paul wrote to one church, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Jesus had taught his disciples about the special peace that he came to give. And in fact, that peace that he came to give was absolutely unique. Friends, we need peace with God. And if we come to know peace with God, then he's set the stage for us to know peace with the most amazing other people. I had one friend who was Hindu, and he looked into his own religion for resources in strife, dealing with strife in his own family. And what he found is he came to understand from his father and from his reading the teachings of Hinduism that he'd been born into was that he was simply told he should cut off these other people who were members of his family or friends because of this conflict. Well, Ashok didn't seem satisfied with that. And he kept looking, and in God's providence, uh, a guy at work that he knew was a Christian, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him over a number of weeks, and Ashok and his wife came to Christ and have grown and flourished. I got an email from him a couple of days ago. He's just preached his first sermon. Praise God. He's in, in business. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, he's flourishing in the Lord, and he's come to know peace with God and peace with other members of his family as well. Friends, how do our services convey this need that we have? How, how do we acknowledge the lack of peace there is between non-Christians and God? You don't help non-Christians by trying to make them feel like they belong and feel really included if you are in any way obscuring the lack of peace they have with God. From time to time in sermons, I'll say something like, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand how much you don't belong here. We're, we're delighted you're here. Thank you for being here. 
hope you have enjoyed the friendship of people here, and we want you to come every week. We want you to get to know us. But I guess what I want to say to you is, as much as you may have enjoyed getting to know us, there is so much better stuff than this that you haven't experienced yet. And we don't want to mislead you by our friendliness to you to let you think that you've experienced all there is in being a Christian. Because the most important stuff you haven't yet. And then just go in and explain the gospel. I think sometimes as Christians we're scared to be obviously exclusive. When if we do that with grace and winsomeness and in humility, friends, that's, that's the only way anybody's ever going to be saved. By us telling them the truth that they're not. Friends, we need to be clear that we are people who need to be objects of God's mercy. We need to be at peace with God because by nature we are not. So what we never want to do is try to communicate peace in some wan, pale, hallmark card fashion where we just have a sort of bland sentiment of a surface mood of peacefulness. Um, that's, that's not what Christian worship is about. We're not about lowering our blood pressure in that sense. We need to know that, that we only want peace after the terrible conflict we're in has been recognized. We are at war with God. And what is even worse, God is at war with us. And that's because he should be. Friends, we've got to acknowledge that fact very clearly. Finally, we see that he also prays for love. Love to be yours, he says, in abundance. And of course, love is at the very heart of the gospel. We've already seen that it was God's love that initiated this all. And it's the love of God that Jude exhorts themselves to, to keep themselves in as he closes the letter down in verse 21. Now, we Christians know ourselves to be the recipients of lavish, extravagant love of God. And as with mercy and peace that Jude prays for them, so too with love. Their love originates in the love they've known from God and is to continue on from them to those around them. That's why Paul says to the Colossians, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So we can follow biblical examples to pray for love in each other. Paul prays for, for love in the Ephesians, Ephesians 3. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Some such prayer for love is often at the ending of the letters of the New Testament. Have you noticed that? So in your pastoral prayers on Sunday morning, how often do you pray for you and the other Christians you've gathered with to be filled with the love of God? What a wonderfully biblical thing to pray for. Jesus, of course, was concerned with the love of God, that it should be known and shown. He condemned the Pharisees for, for not doing that and exhorted his own disciples to make it typical of them. John 13, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. No, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Indeed, that, the last line of Jesus' great prayer for his disciples in John 17 is for God's love to dwell in them. If you look over at John 17, 26. 
And notice that, that all of these, mercy, peace, and love, Jude prayed for these Christians in abundance. I love the generosity of spirit there. He prayed that these characteristics would, would grow in them. He prayed that, that their mercy would increase, that their, their peace would spread, that their love would grow greater and greater. Remember Jesus had taught that in the last times, wickedness would become more and more abundant and the love of people would, do you remember what he said, grow cold? So Jude, recognizing the, the kind of death rattle of this world, prayed against this, praying that these Christians would be the opposite of this, praying that we would be bright witnesses of the reality of God in a world that foolishly ignores him and rebels against him. So Jude prays here for growing apprehension of their mercy and peace and love from God and in the process, their practice of mercy, peace, and love toward each other and toward those outside the church. Mercy, peace, and love in abundance are needed by Christian worshipers in our relationship with God and our relationships with each other then and now. So friends, we see the way that Jude has described his readers here, and that should remind us that the church is fundamentally a spiritual concern. These are the kind of matters that your pastor should be talking about. Your pastor should be concerned about these kinds of things, about the understanding and the experience of these things with each member of your congregation. That's what it should mean to be in a Christian church. So Jude prays that these Christians may know mercy, peace, and love in abundance. You've been very patient. It's after dinner. Let's just think for a moment. Back over these first couple of verses, we've seen what these worshipers are, called by God, loved, and kept, and what these worshipers need. Just look down for a moment. Just look at the verses again. Look back over verse 1 and 2. Just take that in. It's very simple, but it's amazing. And these realities need to form the center of our local church's services. I, I loved what Matt Papa said on the panel today about the kind of, you know, he doesn't start out usually with, a, I think he said never, but I'll assume usually with a song about the cross. I'm right there with him. I plan our services. Praise the Lord Almighty is a great way to start out. I'm probably going to start out with it as well. I'm not going to start out with, um, you know, uh, over a thousand tongues to sing or uh, what wondrous love is this. I'm, I, I want to start with some of the grandeur of God. I, I want to rehearse the gospel in the whole service. Before the sermon ever comes, from the, the hymns and songs, from the prayers and the scripture readings, I want the gospel to have just soaked the place again and again and again. And part of what that means in the overall rhythm of it, rhythm of it, we rehearse God's greatness, our need, and what he's done in Christ. That's what we want to do again and again as we gather with this weekly rhythm that he gives to us in his word. I love the way we begin each week, first thing, Sunday morning. Why do Christians gather then? Because that's when Jesus got up from the dead. You know, one of the most amazing arguments for the truth of the resurrection is a religious practice changing. Why did this religious practice of the Jews for thousands of years of meeting on the seventh day all of a sudden switch to the first day? Because Jesus got up from the dead. 
It wasn't a day off for them on Sunday then. They had to go to work. They met early. Why? Because Jesus got up from the dead. They were excited. They wanted to gather to memorialize and to encourage themselves with the hope of what's coming. Friends, we rehearse the gospel in this weekly rhythm, and we begin our weeks at the very beginning, breaking off that very first part of the time of the week and giving it to the Lord, just saying, this is yours. We rejoice. It's, it's a symbol of how all that we have is yours. You know, the most important things about your church are never, never the things that are unique about your church. The most important things about your church are all these things I've just been talking about. The most important things about your church, your church has in common with every other true Christian church that exists around the world and has ever existed from Jesus' time to our own. We need to remember that as we plan our services. A true worshiper may not be musical, may not be moved emotionally, may not be enthusiastic, be all those things in heaven, but in this world, a true worshiper is someone who is called by God, loved by the Father, kept by Jesus Christ, who has known and who needs to know more mercy and peace and love. Is this you? I pray so. Do you keep this at the heart of the public services that you're responsible for? Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for each one who hears your word. Thank you for each one who hears your word even tonight. We pray for those who lead songs, that you would give them humility. Lord, we pray for those who lead people, that you would cause them to be qualified by your spirit of the great responsibilities you give them. Lord, aid us in building up the very ones that you have called and loved and the very ones that you're keeping even tonight through this time together. We pray again for our good and for your everlasting glory. In Jesus' name, amen.